0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Isabel Machado, who is a cultural historian whose work often crosses national and disciplinary boundaries. She specializes in the fields of gender and sexuality studies and celebration studies. She is particularly interested in carnivals and drag competition. She is also working on an ongoing oral history project, Queens of the South, where she is interviewing performers who defy gender normativity in different parts of the globe. She also serves as co-editor of the Journal of Festive Studies and as an interviewer for the New Book Network's podcast. Today, we will be discussing her book, Carnival in Alabama mass bodies and invented traditions in Mobile, Professor Machado. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Katrina. It's so
1: exciting. As you know, uh, I've served as a host uh, in the NBN for quite some time, and you know, if you told me a few years ago that I will be sitting here on the guest chair, um, that didn't seem like uh, you know uh, quite possible. So now here I am, very excited and just excited to share this with you, because uh, somebody who actually knows uh, Mobile and Mardi Gras. So
0: thank you so much for having me. I am super excited about this interview because this takes me back so much to my childhood, young adulthood. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yes.
1: uh, So... Just the, the book's elevator pitch. So that how you know, I introduce this uh, very briefly is that it uses Mardi Gras as a vehicle to understand social and cultural changes in Mobile in the 20th century. So it's not a comprehensive history of Mobile's Mardi Gras. It's a short book. I couldn't do that. It's not even like a comprehensive history of particular experiences. Mardi Gras is this vehicle that guides us through Uh, the history of social and cultural change uh, in Mobile and sort of uh, the second half. I go a a little bit further at times to the late 19th century, but it's mostly the second half of the 20th century. And most importantly, I think what this book does, that previous works that looked at Mobile's Mardi Gras didn't do, is place these changes in a historical context. So um, many of the previous works that looked into Mobile's Mardi Gras they are very good at telling you who was, where, when. This book's, uh, book is asking how and why these things happen. So um, I think that the book does three things. It looks at how Mardi Gras reflects social cultural hierarchies and systems of oppression and privilege. It also looks at how Mardi Gras reinforces those social cultural hierarchies and so systems of oppression and privilege, But most importantly, it shows how Mardi Gras served as a means to negotiate and to defy these hierarchies and systems of oppression uh, uh, and privilege. It is talking about how groups of people who have been historically marginalized or whose histories have been erased use Mardi Gras to negotiate their space in Mobile.
0: How did you become interested in Mardi Gras and carnival? as your topic? Ooh,
1: uh, as you know, the book has three uh, or four, I don't know, origin stories. I started, you know, tracing this further back. Um, So the first origin story is, of course, it's a PhD. It, It came from my PhD research. I moved to the University of Memphis after living in Mobile for four years. And actually I applied there with a completely different project. I was looking at representations of poor white Southerners in cinema, in horror movies, what I call the redneck nightmare film genre or the inbred slasher movie. I was really into that because I also have a master's in film studies. But as I started thinking about the PhD dissertation, I realized that the previous project, it was completely an archival project and I needed people. I needed to go somewhere and... Um, you know, I needed to talk to folks. So I kept thinking about, you know, what do I want to talk about? And I think I, I, um, I didn't think about that then, but I gave a talk uh, recently at, at the University of South Alabama, uh, where, you know, we both have history there. And I remember my old professor, Dr. Um remember Dr. Macaluzzo? He used to tell us that once you pick a PhD subject, choose a place you want to go. Choose a place you want to go back to over and over again. Everybody knew his obsession with France. And he actually, you know, so that's, he specialized in French history because he loved Paris. So I thought, where do I want to go back to over and over? And what is a place that I want to learn more and uh, that I'm curious about? And I thought about Mobile because I know it's a big cliche, but I left Mobile. Mobile never left me. Um, in Mobile, I had, you know, worked as sort of. I tried to to work in filmmaking, so I've done a few documentaries. I knew a bunch of folks. I've had been inter- interviewing people. I was very immersed in the community, and but another reason I think we can uh, say is that I didn't really understand Mobile, Mardi Gras when I got there. So I think the book is a reflection of this journey that I had with that question of, you know, um, when I first encountered Mobile Mardi Gras, I was confused. Um, my superficial, you know, I'm coming for, again. So I get the other origins is somebody who's coming from Brazil and more importantly, coming from Salvador. It's in the Northeast of Brazil. Uh, uh it was once the first capital of Brazil. It's a city that is, uh, that, uh, Afro-Brazilian culture, uh, uh, the culture of the African diaspora, is very strong there. So um, my superficial encounters with mobile Cele- uh, celebration, um, I it was a, a carnival that to me seemed the that that didn't have much in terms of blackness and queerness, something that was you know very present in my experiences of carnival, and it also. Um, seemed like a spectator sport right you would go you would see parades folks would throw stuff at you i didn't quite get it but then you know as you start building a community and understanding mobile as home i started to understand that mardi gras is much more than that uh i started understanding that there are other mardi gras experiences right started hearing about the gay mardi gras balls and uh the uh the whole you know, beautiful celebration that happens in the African American community. I started understanding that you know, Mardi Gras is about visiting. It's about eating with, communing with friends and family, and meeting strangers who then become your friends and family. It's this joy of recognizing a familiar face behind the masks or being recognized in the you know the crowd. It's about the spot. Where you choose to to catch, uh, you know, the parades and the stuff the folks throw at you, right? Um, so when you understand that these parts matter, so the whole ritual makes sense. It's understanding that you know the after ball parties and drag shows, in my case, were just if not more important than the actual ball. So I guess it was me uh, trying to understand the celebration I was so fascinated about and also this wanting to keep going back to mobile.
0: (laughs) I understand that. I definitely understand that. Now you were mentioning that as you said, you also needed archives and you could not get those when you were doing, um, the film studies. Can you tell me what sort of sources you were using for your analysis?
1: So, um, the, when I first, when I understood that I wanted to cover, you know, uh, the Mardi Gras was a larger theme, um, but I, I, I wanted to, uh, uh, uncover these, um, these so, sort of stories and experiences that had been, uh, sort of silenced or erased in, in more traditional mm, accounts. Um, the first thing that I did, you know, when you go to archives and you look at Mardi Gras material, it's just overwhelming, right? So I, I, um, my first, first, you know, step was at uh, the History Museum. Chuck Torrey is an amazing person. He has collected um, sort of these binders filled with um, um, sort of clippings, news clippings that go, you know, from for centuries there. So I looked at the clippings to try to have a broad picture. So there's a lot of newspaper um, research there. Um, the first uh, uh, chapter that I uh, I think I, I started working on was the one that deals with LGBTQIA plus history, and uh, I uh, very naively I thought you know because I was looking at a particular organization that started in the 80s I thought well this is very recent history. Um, Whereas, you know, to look at some of the original African-American organizations, I'll need to go back to the 19th century. Let me start here because, you know, this might be a little bit easier. Of course, it was not, right? The the LGBTQIA plus history was absolutely erased from the official records. You don't, you know, there wasn't a lot of coverage of the events, of, um, you know, the celebrations of LGBTQIA plus people in the official records. So I did what uh, many, many historians who uh, investigate LGBTQIA history done before and since, I, I knew that oral histories had to be at the heart of my story. So first to, to get to these stories that I couldn't find in the archives, but then because I wanted people to tell these stories in their own words. When it comes, for instance, to thinking about African-American history, a lot has been written about folks both by white authors but also by by some african-american organizations who write a particular version of that story and i knew that uh, also coming at the story as at this investigation as an outsider i wanted to let people tell me the stories in their own words that's why uh, as you know the book contains um lots of block quotes i put people in conversation um uh, maybe people weren't in the same room, but I wanted them to tell these stories and tell me what it meant to them. Because um, as as I've mentioned to you, one of the, uh, I think the main uh, goals of this book is to bring other voices, other faces, other perspectives to the historical record of Mobile's Mardi Gras. But it also, so a lot of but just, uh, I, I think I'm, um, getting off topic here, just uh, quickly summarize the the sources. So lots of newspaper and and all kinds of, you know, official documents to be able to to understand how the, the, you know, how Mardi Gras was organized, who all was involved in creating the invented traditions that we're going to talk. I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about that. So I looked at the official documents uh, minutes from uh, meetings. So there was a lot of that. city ordinances play a a big role in this book Uh, but the heart of it is people's personal stories and uh, as I mentioned here as well and I need to be uh, very thankful for the University Press of Mississippi for granting me the first author's fund that allowed me to do that. One of the first things that I talked to them when we were negotiating this book is that I want a lot of images. It's for, you know, for a first book, a dissertation book, this is a bit uh, ex- an exaggeration. I have more, uh, almost 80 images in this in this book. Um, I wanted people to not only, you know, read about folks, I needed them to look at those people, to see them,
0: and again, place them in this historical record. That makes a lot of, because Mardi Gras is not something that you can just read about. You also do need to see the visual images from it. Um uh, to try to connect to it. So you mentioned those terms, um, invented tradition and marketness, which is another. Can you explain a little bit about those and how they became central to your argument? Absolutely. And I'm happy you answered that because I
1: think this is, I'm actually going to a conference about, an international conference on carnival and I think this is like um, the contribution that the book uh, does that goes beyond the local story, right? So I'm using two concepts to frame the book. And uh, as, you, as you know, that's how the chapters are organized. It has two separate sections. So the concept of invented traditions, uh, Any and if there's if there are any historians listening, they will immediately recognize a book by Eric Hobsbawm it's a very you know, uh, famous and, and important book in our field. And here invented traditions are defined as, quote, a set of practices normally governed by overtly or tacitly accepted rules and of a ritual and symbolic nature, which seek to inculcate certain values and norms of behavior by repetition, which automatically implies continuity with the past. And this, this last part is really important, right? Continuity with the past. We often look at the past, we use the past to justify the present, but we forget that traditions are invented and reinvented over time. And, and traditions, I think the most important thing is that traditions can be liberating, but they can also be oppressive. Um, and but the the concept arrives at my book more directly to the, through the work of Maria Isaura Pereira de Queiroz, a Brazilian scholar, who applies this concept right takes it, the concept that, that's very well known in in, in his historiography to the study of Brazilian carnival. So uh, and that's you know I, I think one of my contributions is bringing this other perspective to the story. So Maria Isaura Pereira de Queiroz she starts criticizing. The scholarship that you know that, that looked at Brazilian carnival had only focused on carnival's origins or its essence, right? This this idea, this obsession we have with authenticity, but it ignored carnival's historicity, or how it changes over time, and how social and cultural, uh, you know, economic, all kinds of contexts change the way the celebrations exist, right? So she's, she's challenging these works that are, are just you know, trying to find this inception of the celebration in the distant pa- past, looking for a long tradition. And instead, she's proposing that we use a social historical approach and a methodology to understand the connection, again, this is important, this connection between social historical economic change and Carnival. But one of the things that, uh, again, that was most important in reading that book uh, that Maria Estrella Pereira de work was that she asked us to question the origins and the context in which these myths are created. And when, you know, people in Mobile, um, they were confronted by the reality of their segregated celebration, folks would often tell me, uh, you know, Birds of a feather flock together. And they would say, you know, these are social groups, and that's normal for people to want to be in their group, their, their, with their peers. But nobody questioned the reason why these groups broke along racial lines or why LGBTQIA people needed a separate Mardi Gras organization, right? So um, different, uh, I, I don't want to get too much into this. This is a long chapter. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to figure out how much backstory do I need to tell you, because uh, uh, to folks who may not be familiar with Mobile Mardi Gras, but different people have um, uh, pointed out different points of origin or origin myths for uh, the history of Mobile Mardi Gras. And to me, uh, the discussion over whether this or that myth of origin is more or less accurate is less relevant then the discussion of what the myths do. And so if we think about invented traditions as stories, these stories we tell, write a narrative, we tell about a celebration. Mobile has a few of them, but all of these stories establish, uh, as I'm, 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 I'm showing in the book and, uh, another, there's another article that I published, uh, with, uh, musicologist MD Ruth Allen on this subject. These stories establish Mobile Mardi Gras as something that is for and by white elites, right? So it becomes this, this white supremacist, almost, or in some cases a confederate mo- monument. But, and then these elites very generously let other folks join in the story. But um, what I'm proposing here are different narratives, are different ways of looking at the story through different perspectives so that we can challenge this Uh, white um, supremacist
0: uh, story, if you will. That makes a lot of sense. And if you think about it, as you're talking about these different origin myths, it goes to, say, what exactly and who exactly, as you mentioned, were they actually established for and who were they for and who were they not, who was left out of the narrative. So if we go to... And some of these you mentioned in your book, um, what is kind of, and there are many, a different origin narratives or Mobile's Mardi Gras, but what are a couple of the big ones? What are the ones that most people often point to as the origins of Mardi Gras in Mobile?
1: Yeah. So there are diff- these, and it's interesting, right? Cause, um. Because that seeps, you know, gets into um, tourism, advertising, all of that. You have these different narratives, and it's interesting that these narratives sometimes contradict each other. But you know, um, that's you know, we use the past, the, uh, we use history to, as I mentioned, to um, justify, to explain, and and to for our purposes in the present. That's something we all do, and uh, that. So this is not a critique of that, right? But um, so there are different. One is that, you know, Mobile was established before New Orleans. So it had some sort of celebration before New Orleans. Um, That is a bit complicated. Uh, Some folks have challenged that. The other is that Mobile invented the idea of the Mystic Society. So what are known in uh, New Orleans as uh, Mardi Gras Cruz. So in the 1830s, some people, folks of the white elite, start organizing and parading on New Year's uh, Eve. And so they created the structure of the mystic society, which then is exported to New Orleans. Problem with that narrative is that, you know, again, it establishes what Mardi Gras is and Mardi Gras is, uh, it becomes these set of balls and parades that are organized by the white elites. And for instance, African-Americans only enter the historical timeline. And this, you can see that there are websites, there are books that have a historical timeline. And African-Americans only enter, like they join the timeline, when they start organizing exactly like the white elites. And I'm willing to bet in the book has some evidence that, you know, African-American folks had their own celebrations. And not only that, like people in the streets were probably celebrating, but that is not considered Mardi Gras. So when people ask me, you know, uh, about the big beef and feud between New Orleans and and at mobile who started mardi gras or well in the case of mobiles they don't ask they tell me you know we started this right <laughs> i try to get i yeah i try to get away, you know stay away from that man you know i don't I don't want to get in trouble i tell them it depends on what you mean when you say mardi gras and of course people don't like that answer but it's true right if for you mardi gras is only mardi gras When it's a group of, you know, white elites in a particular ball or a parade, then, you know, that's, you know, you find an origin point there. But I don't think anybody has started uh, so far and actually had a great conversation with some folks at the University of South Alabama on this latest trip. I'm really excited. I'm hoping to see some work uh, come out of this. What are the origins of African American celebrations in Mobile? Right, we can take it way far, far back centuries ago. Nobody's looking at that, and I—that was not the purpose. Right? Like it, it, it was way outside, the, you know, the the frame of this book. But you know, I'm a 20th century historian. But there are other types of celebrations that, f- for sure, existed before. Uh, African Americans and you know the African American, the main African American Mardi Gras organization and the main elite white organization. They actually had an agreement, right, on how African American Mardi Gras should be organized, and that's the only story that's t- told about African American experiences, um, you know, of 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 Mardi Gras. And there's also, uh, as 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 you know, the, what I call the Confederate rebirth, um, because. So that's another long story, folks. I would, uh, <laughs> if you want to know more, a little bit more about that, there's, we uh, published an article about this with Emily Ruth Allen on the third issue of the Journal of Essence Studies. But let, just very quickly here, uh, everybody in Mobile knows about a figure. It's the most famous figure in Mobile Mardi Gras called Joe Kane. And um, so different people tell the this story a little bit differently. And, you know, some folks have done more um, research, but the, the story that the, you know, that's in popular imaginary is that, you know, after the civil war, folks, ha- folk, uh, Mardi Gras didn't, didn't happen during the civil war. So this guy, um, a Confederate soldier dressed as an undefeated Chickasaw chief, right? So basically it's a white man in red face. And marched the streets of Mobile, challenging Union soldiers and bringing back joy to the city. So it is very much, you know, uh, it's, it, it's the story. The way it's it's it starts is very much imbued in lost cause nostalgia. And um, so again, that's a long story <laughs> that folks can read a little bit more about in the article in the book. But what happens in the 1960s? Is that um, folks revive this character, right? So some, yes, they literally, you know, this and the, the the guy is taken from his grave, and I think it's by a and he is buried in the in the local cemetery, and there's a huge celebration. It is the biggest day in Mobile, Marigra,
0: as you can attest, right? Yes, it's Sunday, yeah. Joe Cain Day. There are widows that are dancing at the graveside. Yes, it is a it is a celebratory day. I will say that, Yes, yes. And there's and so much imagery that surrounds it. Yes, exactly.
1: So that is these all, this, this, oh, but they so that narrative tells us that you know Mardi Gras was gone, and he brings it back. But there is some evidence that the first parades actually happened uh, after the Civil War. So again, I'm not a historian of that particular period. I don't want to get into that feud. But it's so again, to me, it's not important whether we decide that the point of origin of the celebration was the naming of a historical marker in the 17th century, the founding of the city, the creation of mystic societies, or an act of defiance by a Confederate soldier, the narrative it always uh, inevitably establishes what mardi gras is and who are the protagonists in the story and so we need i wanted to find other origin stories other so uh, not, uh is it I'm sorry to interrupt here but i i can see that my connection isn't great okay it's back sorry so um And I lost my train of thought.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I understand that. Um, um, Joe Kane, as you mentioned, it is, it's such a ritual that still goes on to this day. But as you mentioned, you know, and you talk about in your book, you know, the 1970s, the idea of Joe Kane Day change. And you mentioned that it becomes a more democratizing space. Can you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So, and... That was something that was very important to me and to Dr. Allen, when we wrote our uh, article on Joe Kane. was that, you know, we are of course pointing out all the problematic elements in the Joe Kane celebration from the Confederate Memorial to um, the red face elements of it, but we are in no way want to dismiss the fact. That this was a space where people from, you know, uh, historically marginalized communities could claim their space in um, the celebration. Because unlike other um, Mardi Gras events that, you know, you had to, you were the spectator and, you know, you had people who originally uh, were from these white elites parading and throwing things at you. Joking Day is is when they have what they are called the People's Parade. So it's the place where you can march. So technically, anybody can march on Joking Day. So um, it becomes, this. it's a special day for folks in the African-American community. And it was also a space where people who defy gender and sexual normativity could uh, express themselves more freely. Um, Many, I uh, heard many, many beautiful stories of folks who went out in drag and or who paraded as a group, right? All in fanta- fabulous costumes. Because in Joe King Day, you could do that. So it's a very a uh, 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 place, uh, well, a date that is very dear to uh, a lot of people's hearts. And so by no means, what I, what I wanted to say with that article is that joking is complicated. And that's, these celebrations usually are, right? And it's not a matter of oh, it's problematic. Let's get rid of it. No. So how do we deal? How we negotiate these these these, these, these problematic elements, but also, it is this 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 democratizing space. It is the space that brings joy to so many people. Um, I, for two two years, I managed to uh, to march it with uh, the, the 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 joking secret misters. It's, they're very rebellious, a bunch uh, that, uh, that include folks in drag. And also they're defying all the, the conventions uh, in mobile society. So I didn't really march with them. I wasn't in costume, but I was in, I managed to uh, be inside of the, um, you know, the parade and, and photograph and hang out with folks. So it is a, a special day in a special uh, place but one that has
0: a very complicated history. That it does. And a part of that, you know, you talk about in your book, there is this idea about Mobile's Mardi Gras being viewed, you know, as this prism of segregation because it's often viewed, and for a very long time, there was this idea of separateness uh, and how it was actually... Portrayed and done. Can you speak a little bit about that and how that's changed over time? Well, it
1: has and hasn't changed, right? So, um... see, I was trying for optimism here, <laughs> and well, a good place to get to the the you know to see that how how that version of the story, right? The, I I don't think I would do it as well as. Margaret Brown's documentary, Order of Myths. It shows um, the, the how Mobile Mardi Gras is segregated. And um, so the big thing that is used, right, to show the segregation is that, and, and it's absolutely fact, that every year Mobile has two big carnival organizations. They crown two uh, separate kings and, and queens, pairs of monarchs. Um, Uh, They have different names, these organizations. Mobile Carnival Organization is the one that came, has historically for uh, over 100 years organized by the white elites and the Mobile Area Mardi Gras Organization, previously uh, known as the Colored Carnival Association that began in the 1930s. But that is only one thing that I want to, uh, you know, to call attention in this book is that this, that's only part of the story. And uh, when we focus on these two big organizations and how they're racially segregated, we don't understand other um, how other identity markers feature into that that story. For instance, uh, the area Mardi Gras Association uh, caters mostly to a Black elite, right? So... Um, I'm interested in also what's going on in other, um, spaces and non-organized, uh, celebrations and in that, but the city is right. Um, if you, especially if you look, uh, historically this, the city was officially and, uh, legally segregated. So people had different spaces where they could exist and, um, negotiate their you know their particip- participation in the city in general and in Mardi Gras specifically. yet what I want to, to show as well in this book is how that wasn't always the case, right? Um, African Americans came downtown to watch the white parades. they may have not have you know found sort of like security in specific uh, places. But black people were always part of the uh, of the uh, white parades and events, so it is segregated, but it it isn't right when you think about participation in Mardi Gras in a broader
0: sense. Right, and you and I know one of the things that your book definitely illustrates is this idea, as you were discussing the Mardi Gras Association, there early on. Um, This idea about, for African Americans, this notion of respectability and how important that was, especially among the elite Black community during this time. Um, You know, there is, as you say, the official Mardi Gras that happens downtown Mobile. But there there are other, you know, Black Mardi Gras celebrations that go on during Mardi Gras that aren't as, you know, large scale although it is because I know when I was growing up there was always a parade and I remember this a parade route that was close to my house and it was always and I think it was the um, Pritchard Area Association Mardi Gras that occurs and it was a parade that I would be able to walk to uh, and it wasn't downtown but it was you know it would always be the Monday Um, almost the last day of Mardi Gras Um, was on that Monday um, for Mardi Gras. And then there's also another parade that's smaller scale that was in Trinity Gardens. But that was a, you know, these are communities that aren't as wealthy um, as the others. So it doesn't have that low. It's different. It's very, very different from downtown Mobile, Mardi Gras.
1: Yes. So I'll get into the respectability politics, but I've just realized that I just went for so long explaining invented traditions that I didn't explain what do I mean by marked bodies. And that's, you know, an important frame on the phone. uh Just let me get to that very briefly. Um, so it's something I'm, I'm borrowing from uh, linguistics. I'm not a linguist, so I'll probably make a mess if I try to explain it properly. But uh, for me, it was useful as a theoretical framework to explain social cultural formations and relations and more importantly, hierarchies. So the the basic idea here is that the unmarked form, and that's something again, that comes from language, seems to be neutral. It's normal. It's natural. They're reflecting uh, dominant cultural norms, but they hide a privileged uh, status. The marked forms, on the other hand, they are understood as derivative, as deviant, subordinate. And that, for me, was a very useful concept to analyze Mobile Mardi Gras because in publications, in museum exhibitions, but also in informal conversations that I had with folks, what Black Mardi Gras, Black Carnival, gay Mardi Gras balls, and even women's organizations were always marked Nobody ever invited me to go to a white straight man's ball. It's implicit, right? It's, it doesn't need to be marked. So when people, I invite you to go to the parade downtown, they're inviting you to the white parade. But if they mean an African-American, you know, pageantry in any, uh, any way, it, it is always marked. And the, why that's important. I think somebody has explained this much better than I can is the the great artist and and scholar, Grada Quilomba, she puts it in a way that that I thought was very beautiful. She says, um, I'm sort of quoting and paraphrasing here, but she she was talking about in an interview about how black people are often referred to as different. And so she's asking, different from whom? Who is different? Uh, You know, are, are other people, white people different from me or am I different from them? So she says that she's only different because the white person sees themselves as a point of reference, as the norm from which she differs. But if she places herself as the norm from which others differ from, then they are different from us, from from her. So she's saying that we need to deconstruct the idea of difference. And I love that it's because, you know, people often told me, you know, oh, the gay Mardi Gras is so different. The African American marigua is so different, but like they're only different if the the one the spectacle created for and by the white elites is the norm. And when you and the thing about difference is that it creates hierarchies, right? The one who's different is is derivative. And so that that was how I, I chose to frame this. And after after I, I understood that framework, I could understand. How you know invented the invented tradition marked certain bodies or cer- certain groups of people as different, as subordinate to um, the the unmarked
0: narrative, if you will. So, um, building off of that, how did, how and when did "quote unquote" gay Mardi Gras arrive in Mobile?
1: So, um, that's, you know, um, the first thing that came out of this research was an article about the, the order of Osiris. And, uh, I will talk a, a little bit about that in a minute, but when I was writing the book, I wanted to expand that chapter to, um, understand how we, we, what we call right, a gay Mardi Gras likely started with these organizations in the 20th century. But people who defy gender and sexual normativity have always been there and mardi gras has historically been all over the world a space where people could experiment right with gender with sexuality in sort of a safe ish environment it's a freeing space it's a freeing space um in many places, right, costuming is, is allowed during Mardi Gras, although, again, there's a whole chapter explaining how Mobile had a, diff, complete, a complicated relationship with costuming and masking the streets. But, and as you know, as a historian, we cannot assign gender identities or sexual orientations to people in the past. Uh, it's very hard to do that unless, you know, we find actually, uh, you know, a document penned by the person where they're, but that's not um, as easy to find. So, cross dressing, playing with gender has been, you know, around. I show a few examples in, uh, in I think it's chapter five. Oh, it's a chapter called Queering Mardi Gras. <laughs> but you have all these examples of people in the past who somehow defy gender and sexual normativity. And of course, when we look at those instances, it's not always clear if somebody was doing that to inhabit an an identity that had to be hidden, you know, uh, at other times, or if they were just, you know, doing that for for fun. Um, There are instances also when people cross-dress or do drag, right? Men do drag very grotesquely as a way to affirm their masculinity and to make fun of male femininity. So we, it's not always clear um, when, uh, when, w- what is happening when. Um, again, I tried to document these instances without uh, assigning somebody gender identities and sexual orientations. The more official, what we call gay Mardi Gras, starts in the um, second half of the 20th century with certain organizations that are created for and by groups of people mostly some some of the first ones are only gay men but then you have some that include uh, lesbian women as well and so the the one that I talk about the most because again my book is is uh interested right in how traditions are invented is the o- order of Osiris because the order of Osiris is the longest surviving gay marriage organization it started in 1982 and it's still going on so others that started before it uh do not exist anymore and others that started since you know um there are others that started since but Osiris had this has this importance historical importance of being
0: the the oldest surviving organization and you mentioned there's a ball that will be going on during this time, which is another space. Uh, so you, it's interesting. You've got, there are these different layers. You have the white Mighty Gross balls, you have the black ones, and then you have the ones for the LGBT community as well. All that's occurring during, you know, this intensive on, um, that's the only word I can think of it. Two week period. Um, you know, all of these things are going on during this time, but it's interesting, you know, when you think about these different spaces and how, I want to ask you, how did you see, you know, these bodies acting in what is considered the normalized space, even though there is no such thing, especially during Mardi Gras, of what's going on in downtown Mobile, per se, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah that's a, a an interesting question in the sense that um that's one of the things that I wanted to look at it's how you know the um, marked bodies express themselves and experience the city differently in different spaces right and this some of this I'm uh, you know especially when it came to analyzing Black participation in Mobile Mardi Gras, I'm absolutely borrowing from, or building from the incredible work of Dr. Kern Jackson. He has an incredible uh, article about that on um, tributaries. It's it's the journal of the Alabama Folklife Association. But anyways, so he's talking about, for instance, in his case, he's analyzing what happens when the parade route changes. So if folks are not familiar with the story, the African-American Mardi Gras existed exclusively in the Black community until the 1990s. I think it's 92, the parade route changes, and the African-American parade starts doing the downtown route uh, uh, as well. So Dr. Jackson looks at, you know, how does the white gaze um, affect Black participation in Mardi Gras? It's Something... Um, I, I was actually interested in interviewing people who participated in both, uh, both, you know, did Mardi Gras, paraded, or performed as musicians or in in other capacities in both spaces. And so there's a chapter, I think it's one of the last chapters, where I talk about what happens when Mark Boddy's uh, celebration goes mainstream. And uh, what I'm interested in is looking at how you know, when you're performing for a group of people who who has once rejected or marginalized you, so are you uh, expressing yourself or are you representing yourself in a way that's sort of more palatable? Which brings us back to that question you asked that I also, you know, uh, started answering something else: the idea of respectability politics. Um, when we think about this idea of respectability politics. It, there there's a critique to be made of respectability politics, right? Because when you are representing yourself in a way that's respectable, you often have to um, sort of identify who you're not like, right? So if you're an African-American person, you will to use a more colloquial expression, you throw other folks under the bus. right? So if you're a member of the white uh, the black elites, and you're talking to the white elite, say, no, we do not act like you know other folks. We're better. And it's, it's the same process happens with uh you know LGBTQ plus uh, representation, right? Do you focus uh, on this idea of a respectable way, of a way of existing that's as similar as possible to a heteronormative uh society or to how other folks think you should behave and express yourself. So there's a critique we can make of, of respectability politics. Is because, you know, of who is left out, who is being, uh, you know, which expression of Blackness or queerness is not considered acceptable. Yet, um, Black feminist scholars have shown us that respectability politics have historically been a means of survival. So it's easier for, for us now to critique respectability politics, but when we place black participation in Mardi Gras in, again, a historical context, and we understand that people were performing respectability politics at a time when folks were being lynched or doing in Jim Crow South, we need to understand that that that's something that was necessary, right? If I, I hope I answered your question.
0: (laughs) You did. And it's interesting, as a former band member myself and performing in the parades. And it's very interesting when you think about what that meant during that time, you know, as now you have distance from all that and what the ways in which your body was viewed or not viewed um, and what was expected of you as you were doing this performance. Um, because it is a performance that you are giving. Um, And at that time, you know, as a a teenager, you don't think about those things. But now as a scholar myself, as you are conceptualizing those moments, you think about there is a lot that went into that, um, into creating that performative moment that you are having um, in front of so many people as you are marching in downtown mobile as you're going through that route Um, and people you know if you know how big it is having the different bands that come into play and what a big part of Mardi Gras that is Um, you know you have there's the floats then you also have the bands which is integral because people love to hear um, the music that is going on during that time as well it's interesting Well, I shouldn't say it's interesting that you mentioned the word lynching. Um, It's actually pretty disturbing because we're talking about 1980s here. And I remember this also growing up myself. um, Glenn Diamond and Michael Donald. Can you say a little bit about those? um, Yes. Very, very disturbing, very disturbing um, tragedies that occurred in Mobile.
1: Yeah, So... The one of the last chapters I talk about, uh, you know, the social and cultural changes in Mobile in the last quarter of the 20th century, and there's a, there are lots of gains for uh, African Americans in in uh, in Mobile in terms of political gains, like concrete political gains. But those exist in uh, a very, as you say, disturbing and horrifying. Context right of of tragedy and and a similar process as I note in that chapter is well not similar but uh, the the LGBTQ plus uh, Mardi Gras celebration is also changing in that period in the context of the rise of HIV AIDS epidemic so these are celebrations that are changing in a context and reinventing it, it, the itself, themselves. In the context of of uh, tragedy and um, and and violence, so it's uh, depending on who you ask, folks were surprised or not that you know uh, that late in the game in the 1980s we have these horrific spectacles of white supremacist violence, to one uh, almost lynching and one uh, quite literal lynching of of uh, black men in Mobile, right? This is, we're talking about the 1980s, but uh, the folks were not surprised by this. We'll mention, for instance, uh, that not very, uh, too long before that, uh, the Klan was marching in Mobile, like, regularly, and that was sort of uh, advertised in the newspaper. So, it's a long and very complicated story again that uh, I'll leave it for folks to read in that, uh, in that chapter. But I think the biggest takeaway that I wanted to, the thing that I wanted to, to say about that is because I'm now very much involved in a, 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 a new field of studies called uh, critical joy studies. And I'm borrowing here from my friend, Miguel Valerio. Dr. Miguel Valerio wrote a beautiful book called Sovereign Joy. And there he talks about to study joy is not to forget pain. He's also, of course, borrowing from Imani Perry's beautiful, uh, article where she's talking about, you know, black defiant joy. And so the narrative, when we talk about, um, the histories and experiences of groups of people who have suffered historical, uh, been the subject of historical violence, who have been historically marginalized. It's either to minimize that pain and focus on the joy. And you probably saw that a lot in Mobile, right? This is a story of happiness, of celebration. Everybody is great. You know, African-Americans are, are crowning kings and queens. We don't, we don't have racism, right? So you erase the pain, you erase the oppression, you erase the violence. The other one is to focus solely on the pain, on the suffering, on the violence, and that other narrative, to me, erases and, and, and removes people's agency. That's again something that uh, that Miguel Valerio's book, Sovereign enjoyed us very beautifully. Um, because the things that are you know the, this violence, this oppression, has been done too, right? The, the, the protagonist in the story is still the white folks were doing the violence. Or the only role that uh, African Americans have in the story is to resist or to suffer to be, um, you know, the victims of that violence. So when you think in a critical joy uh, studies framework, how can we uh, understand the joy and give people this agency of finding joy in those spaces without forgetting the pain? An example that uh, that that I can give you from the book is. Uh, when people look at uh, African-American men who worked in white parades, so you could either you know, just completely erase the labor exploitation and the absolutely blatant display of racial hierarchies, right? There is no doubt about this. You have white men on top of horses and black men carrying the torches and, and pulling the mules. So... You can either completely erase that and pretend it's not there or focus only on the exploitation. When I interviewed folks, they had so many different stories to tell me about this. What they remembered about this um, also as well, right? They were absolutely conscious of the exploitation. It's not that people are not aware of it, but they also told me stories about having fun doing that and because it was a dangerous job, you know, it becomes this thing that as a dare that you show your friends that you can do that as a way to make some money. And then what are you going to do with this money? Right? It's something that's yours. You are the protagonist in the story. So I think that my, my biggest uh, concern is something I've tried to, uh, so throughout the book is I don't shy away from the pain. Somebody who read this, you know, one of the iterations were like, why do we need this? Right? Why do you need a whole section on the Klan, on lynching? And uh, I, I, th- I, I need, need people to understand that Mardi Gras was evolving inside of this context, but I didn't want people to not have a voice in telling how they felt, how they experienced this. Or um, there was a, also a musician who was talking about, yes, you know, there were some races that would taunt, uh, you know, the band players, or would try to mess with the major ads. And I asked him what happened, like, we beat his behind, right? So there are all these other dynamics that are happening inside that um,
0: I think we need to focus on as well. I agree. You know, the tragedies of Glenn Diamond and Michael Donald, you know, that's one part of the story. But there's also, and also, you know, the rise of HIV and AIDS that was going on during this time, too, and the change set of me. But as you say, there... There is another part to that, Um, and the ways in which the people themselves and how they addressed those changes as they were going on and how they lived through it um, and how they were still able to, in all of that, find the joy in everything that was going on during that time. Um, And I know there's often a habit to try to, as you say, it's either or but it can be both at the same time. Um, You know, and they acknowledge that there is both that are simultaneously occurring, but you know, Mardi it's something that is truly a special, I want to say, um, unique experience. You know, as you say, when you first started the interview, it is a unique experience that you keep wanting to come back to. Um, I, I think, As a child, one of my favorite parades, and this is one of the first things that I remember uh, Mystics of Time. I always loved that parade. Um, I don't know, it was always um, so much fun just to go and watch, and we would, and I would see my sister, and she would be performing because she was a flat girl during that time in the band. Um, So it was just. I don't know. There's just something unique about um, Mobile's Mardi Gras experience. You can't take away from it. However, there have been those who are just familiar with those traditions, um, and that makes me think of the film Order of the Mists um, that came out. How did that kind of impact, you know, Mobilians and their thinking of Mardi Gras per se? How did that like... Do you know do you know if it if it really just like was it an eye-opening experience or was it more of the this is an outsider's perspective versus what's really internally happening here
1: so I think what the beauty of order of myths is that nobody can dismiss it as an outsider's perspective because the filmmaker is very you know much you know she's a part of a white elite family who's very immersed in in in, in Mardi Gras right while she you know she left Mobile she has a brilliant career she keeps coming back and just uh, you know producing these amazing films so if you don't know the work of Margaret Brahma, uh check them out the, her new documentary descendants is just a brilliant piece it was done with you know uh the uh, the incredible folklorist Karen Jackson I I recent I just mentioned but I think uh uh, as I like to say, the film sort of shocked uh, outsiders and angered insiders because of this portrayal of the, the segregation of Mobile, Mardi Gras. Folks, for instance, she, she she has an image of Michael Donald and she talks about you know racial violence and people again. People weren't used to seeing the pain associated with with that, right? With the with the celebration. And I think people gave her unprecedented access, the the white elite organization, thinking that, you know, she's one of us, so she's going to paint a nice portrait, and it's not a great portrait. Um, To my surprise, however, I felt that I heard from some people in Black uh, Mardi Gras, excuse me, organizations that... um, They didn't like the portrait uh, as well. Uh, Some people, of course, a lot of people in the city uh, uh, loved that film. It made people rethink, you know, these these segregated practices. It changed some of the practices. More integrated organizations started existing because, I'm sure it's because of that film. But their idea was that it, um, as somebody I quote in the book said, it looked like Black folks wanted to participate in white Mardi Gras more than white, uh, the, the people in white Mardi Gras wanted to participate in black Mardi Gras. So what I think the film didn't do, and I'm not, it's, this is not by no means a critique. It's a film. You have limited amount of time to tell a story. So you need to focus on something and, and she does that beautifully. And that's something again, that I tried to address in the book is to understand that the, the class dynamics and gender dynamics in, in these processes as well right? Because these two organizations represent just a a small percentage of the white um, establishment and of the black establishment in the city. And so a broader view that that considered other things could be interesting as well. And I hope the book's providing that.
0: (laughs) It is. It is. And I, in your own words... I want to ask you, how do you view Mardi Gras in Mobile? You know? Well, I don't Um, know. Now that you've lived through it for X amount of times, and I know, as I can say, my family, many of them who've moved away, they come back to it every year, and it's the familiarity of it. How
1: do you view it? So um, I I wrote a whole book about many different views, but in a more personal way, I think uh, there's so many different experiences of Mardi Gras and I I view it as something that I miss when I cannot uh, go. I keep wanting to go back. Um, But again, it's, it's understanding that there are so, so many different ways to experience Mardi Gras. I have this, this passage in my book of one joking Sunday that, you know, I'm watching a parade in one place and then I had to run, you know, to go eat uh, with some friends and then I run back because there are drag shows downtown. So there is no one, if if anybody tells you what is Mobile Mardi Gras, you're just telling a part of the story. So... Uh, I would just invite everybody to come and experience it for themselves. It's like nothing anywhere else. But don't uh, just do the superficial thing, right? Just go there and you you watch the parade. You might have some fun, but it's not about that. It's about who you catch the parades with, who you're going to eat amazing food with, um, who you're, you know, who is going to perform later and... So it's about much more than the parades
0: and the balls. It's a total experience. That's yes. all I can say. And it's one in which, you know, for, as I say, two weeks, Mobile is transformed in so many ways. Uh, and it's something that they look forward to every, every year. And they're planning. Uh, and there is a lot of planning that goes into it. I mean, and it's as you say, you don't want to just get stuck and say, Hey, I'm gonna go to downtown mobile, I'm gonna catch parade, um, listen to the bands and you know, you're yelling moon pie and candy. Uh no, there's it there's more than that. To truly get into the experience of Monogra, you do have to look at it and experience it from different lands. Um and it's truly exceptional. So Professor Machado, what do you want readers to take away from the book? Hmm. I think um,
1: that's the thing that I took away from the book, and it it, uh, it took me a while to figure that out. Um, while I was writing this book, um, I, I've, I've mentioned the work here of Professor Miguel Valerio, but there are also other folks that I had met. But his book came out right when my book came out, so I didn't have... I only had access to it after I was done with my book. And since then, I started seeing more works in this field of critical joy studies. And only after, you know, the book was published that I understood that it was in dialogue with that scholarship. And so the takeaway here is that what I was just talking about um, and, and and I say this as somebody who is uh, a co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Lesson Studies, sometimes folks tell me, well, your work sounds like a lot of fun. Yes, it is, <laughs> but not in the way that people imagine, oh, you're just talking about celebration, about happiness, about joy. Yes, but it's to understand that in inside of a context, right? And... Um, and People are looking at these these themes in different social historical contexts, but understanding that these celebrations exist in contexts that have, you know, dynamics of social hierarchy, systems of oppression. And so when you look at any celebration, try to think about the dynamics that are uh, existing with, you know, the dynamics in which this celebration exists uh, in. And try to, um, you know, question origin myths about uh, certain celebrations wh- wherever you are, right? So if you've heard a story, what does that story do, right? Um, uh, I was planning a, a course on, on the history of the U.S. through its celebrations, and that's something I was talking about with students. So what does it mean that when we pick an origin point for... I'm focusing more on celebrations, but other things too, right? What, what does that do? What does that
0: create in terms of a narrative? So I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Machado, thank you for joining me today. I will say that this is, uh, I've really enjoyed this discussion because it took me back to so many memories from my own childhood slash young adulthood. Thank you for joining me today. Okay. Readers. Well just
1: uh I'd like to thank you again for this opportunity to come back to the new books Network as a ho- uh as a guest this time and for you reading the book so uh closely and carefully and um it was a joy to talk to
0: you about it. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Carnival in Alabama, marked bodies and invented traditions in Mobile to better understand the social and cultural changes that are, incurring, that are occurring in Mobile's Mardi Gras. And I promise you, it's not truly an academic read. It's also for non-academics as well. It's, you know, there's this very unique experience, this unique festival that occurs twice a year. And this is a great opportunity to learn more about it. So I wholeheartedly urge you to go out and pick it up. And who knows, it might inspire you to take a trip to mobile to experience Mardi Gras itself thank you again for joining me